Welcome to the September edition of Beef Monthly. I'm Dr. Ron Lemonager, Professor and Beef Extension Specialist in the Department of Animal Science at Purdue University. This month's highlights include interviews with Neil Smith, President of the Indiana Beef Cattle Association, and Dr. Kyle Shipman, Director of Field Operations with the Indiana Board of Animal Health. In the Ask Dr. Ron segment, we'll be addressing a producer question about avoiding excess shrink when selling cattle. In the production and management section, we'll be talking about considerations for fall forages and management of both spring and fall calving herds. And now, a word from our good friends at Corteva. Your land is more than a business. It's a heritage that has been passed down from those who tended it before you, by those who shaped it, changed it, and cared for it. Your land has a legacy, one that you carry on, but also one you build on. At Corteva AgriScience, we are the stewards of a lasting legacy. We have a responsibility to Dow AgroSciences to maintain the relationships and trust they built and to build upon those foundations to help you care for your land to provide innovations that help you protect the hard work and investment you've poured into it to help you build a legacy that can be passed on for generations to come Corteva AgriScience In this segment, I'm joined by uh, Neil Smith, who is the Indiana Beef Cattle Association president. And Neil, we just came off of a board meeting that we had some interesting things that I think our producers might be interested in hearing about. So let's start with um, Hoosier Beef Congress. We made a couple changes there, and uh, let's let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, yeah, thank you, Ron. Thanks for having me. And yes, we did just have a very uh, good board meeting and, and a lot of discussion um, about Hoosier Beef Congress. We just met with the state fair staff and barring any government restrictions or changes, um, you know, everything looks good to go for Hoosier Beef Congress with some minor changes. Going to have to probably move the trade show to allow for some social distancing. Um, but every other than that, we're we're kind of planning all the, the traditional activities that you have at the Hoosier Beef Congress. Uh, one major change is that we did um, approve a small increase in entry fees. Um, lots of discussion about different options, but we've, we've continued to get fee increases uh, over the years. Uh, our fees have crept up for, for bedding and for cleanup and for rental and all kinds of things. And, and so, we, we made the decision this year to raise entry fees uh, from 100 up to $125. And again, that will include um, basically everything, the setup, the cleanup, the bedding, and, and everything, and, the, and all the costs that we occur that goes along with that. Um, you know, showmanship is a small charge extra, and then the, the parking pass is just dollar for dollar to the state fair. That's their charge, not ours. So. But felt like it was time after five years that we needed to make a small increase because our fees have, like I said, continually, uh, they fluctuate, but they've been continuing to go up, uh, you know, over the years. So that was, that was why we made that decision. And, and it's still a pretty good bargain compared to a lot of other major shows that uh, you might participate in. 
The second thing uh, is really about Indiana Beef Cattle uh, Convention. You might want to talk a little bit about convention. Yeah, the convention committee has met a few times and, and, and made some changes once again, um, partly because of the pandemic and, and partly financial um, decisions, but we, uh, the, the staff and some of the committee members um, met with the Hendricks County 4-H Fairgrounds and their conference uh, facility there and, and decided that to, to make that move out there to Danville this year. Um, it'd be a one-day event uh, on January the 23rd, um, and, and that facility gives us great space to, to spread out as well as have those uh, affiliate or, or beef association meetings like we've had in the past and the educational breakout sessions, and so um, felt like that facility was a good fit and obviously uh, helps with not creating a financial burden on IBCA's budget this year um, with the move out of the, the downtown hotel kind type of complex. And it ought to really be a good bargain for our producers to attend, I think, too, uh, you know, because it's a little bit cheaper venue. The next area that, that was discussed is the Indiana Beef Cattle Association area beef meetings. So they, uh, you know, we, we typically have done uh, 10 meetings around the state. Uh, and this year, the venue looks a little different. You might talk about that. Uh, yeah, once again, um, we've made some changes to our area beef meeting and, and thanks to you and, and Phil Reed for all your work that you put into that each year and, and again this year, but have, have moved to one virtual area beef meeting versus the, the 10 meetings at 10 locations around scattered around the state. Unfortunately, we won't have the, the social, the social aspect and the 10 meals that goes along with that, but, but decided to do one, I guess, quote unquote, live uh, virtual meeting that will be available to all 10 areas of the state um, at one time. And, and we'll look and, and be set up a lot like our traditional area beef meetings have a, a panel with some moderator and some discussion and question and answer and uh, have, you know, the educational pieces to it. Um, and so, you know, hopefully the, the, the model of the, the meeting will resemble the, the past area beef meetings. It'll just be a virtual this year. You know, and then the other major thing that we kind of spent a little bit of time talking about is the checkoff and, uh, you know, the checkoff dollars because of the COVID-19 and how cattle were marketed or weren't marketed in some cases. Um, and we probably just need to remind our producers that every time an animal is sold, uh, a dollar needs to be remitted back to the Indiana Beef Cattle Association and that you know, 50 cents of that dollar goes on to the national for, for national promotion. Uh, but, um, you know, we do have a number of online sales and production sales and freezer beef sales and, and uh, private treaty sales of maybe a club calf or maybe some breeding stock. And technically, each one of those transactions, uh, you know, by federal law is, is requires a dollar checkoff. So you might kind of add to that. Yeah. 
Yeah, you're, you're right. We're just kind of using this uh, time to remind, you know, all the, the producers that, you know, every time you that you sell an animal that you're required to pay that check off, um, you know, as you said, mandated by federal law and, and, and only to be only fair to everybody if everybody pays. So kind of just want to take this time to remind everybody if you're selling freezer beef, that's been a big trend this year. If you're selling freezer beef, if you're having an online production sale or selling, uh, you know, replacement heifers or a breeding bull or technically even if you give a breeding bull away or, or something or trade, wouldn't probably give one away, but trade, you know, those are, those are still um, required to pay the check off. So basically every time an animal is sold, um, you need to remit the check off. And there is a, a form that you can go to the Indiana Beef Cattle website and, and print that form and then remit that you know, once, twice, four times a year, depending on whatever works best in, in your situation. But it is, it is a requirement. And, and, you know, for those of you that have already remitted, we appreciate it. You know, if you sell your, sell your cattle through a sale barn or, or a, a market place, you know, they, they collect and remit that for you, but it's those individual private sales um, that we're just taking this chance to remind people to uh, remit that money as well. And I think it's, you know, it's as producers, it's really easy to kind of forget about, you know, those sales. And uh, so this is just kind of a good reminder. Yeah. Neil, um, anything else that, that the producers would like to hear about? Uh, I think, um, you know, that touches on, you know, some of the major discussions that we've had here at our board meetings lately. Uh, you know, anybody that's not a member that's, uh, you know, we would, we would love to have, have new members signing up. Um, you know, we work hard, both the volunteers and the staff with, uh, you know, lobbying, lobbying both, uh, at the state house and at the national level, as well as, um, you know, putting on the programs and doing the promotions and, and so, you know, we continue to, to have a lot of different diverse programs and activities as well as um, legislative type uh, activities that, that we're doing. So, you know, we appreciate the members that we have and, and we would love anybody else that's interested in becoming a member. Neil, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Ron. Dr. F. Dr. Ron segment. I had a producer call and asked about how can I minimize excess drink when I'm marketing my cattle? And this is a really good question that many producers don't think much about. There are really two types of shrink. The excretory shrink, which is consists of urine and feces loss, and this typically happens within the first 10 to 12 hours when cattle are held off the feed and water. The recovery from this type of shrink is relatively short. The second type is tissue shrink, and this basically is a decrease in carcass weight. So we're losing moisture from carcass tissues. This tends to happen later, and for example, during long hauls or prolonged periods of fast. When we talk about types of feed that cattle were on prior to experiencing shrink, there was a study that was done where cattle were held off the feed and water for 12 hours, having, but having been fed grass and wet feeds like corn silage, those cattle shrunk about 4%. In the case of finished cattle on a high-concentrate diet, 
With 12 hours without feeding water, they shrunk about 25 to 3%. When those cities of Seattle were allowed to have access to water, they recovered part of that shrink and ended up being at about 2%. Different cattle types also have an effect on shrink. For example, if we have range cattle that are a little bit flightier, a little, they have a little bit larger flight zone, if those cattle are on an overnight stand, in other words, 12 hours without feeding water, they'll shrink about 5%. In the case of some calves, and I would say there was about 4,700 calves in this study, where they took the calves from ranch to feedlot, those cattle shrunk about 7.2%. Cattle that were taken from the sale barn to the feedlot lost about 9.1%. In a Wyoming study, they looked at actually 8 hours, 16 hours, and 24 hours in dry lot, standing without feeding water. 8-hour cattle shrunk about 3.3%. 16-hour cattle and 24-hour cattle, not a lot of difference in the mid-sixes. Right? So if you notice, most of the shrink takes place early with decreasing levels as we extend time. Wyoming study also looked at 8 hours, 16 hours, and 24 hours of moving truck. And again, we see a similar kind of a pattern. 8-hour cattle shrunk about 5.5%. 16 hours in a moving truck shrunk just right at 8%. And 24-hour cattle uh, just under 9%. Again, shrink happens early with a higher, higher weight loss, and then it starts to taper off with, with time. Here's a study out of uh, Ontario, Canada, where they looked at different components of management practices that affect shrink. For example, they looked at 30 minutes uh, of gathering and sorting time, where the cattle shrunk about a half a percent. If those cattle were then weighed and loaded, they shrunk another 3%. The first four hours in a moving truck, they shrunk 4%. In the second four hours in a loaded truck, in a moving truck, they shrunk another 1%. The distance traveled in that study was 400 miles, and those cattle shrunk another 2.5%. So when we look at these collectively, it's possible that cattle could lose up to about 11% of their starting weight, okay, due to shrink. If we put that on a, on a per pound basis, uh, those cattle could shrink almost 66 pounds. At about 40 a pound, that's a loss of about $91.84 just due to shrink. All right, so managing shrink becomes kind of a big deal. Here's a Missouri study uh, on finished cattle where they trucked the cattle 52 miles, took them off the trailer, the, the truck, and, and harvested them immediately. They shrunk about 4.6%. Cattle that were shipped 373 miles, followed by an immediate harvest, shrunk about 7.7%. Now, we could do almost double those miles, okay, at 746 miles, followed by immediate harvest, and they, they, they shrunk a little bit more, but not significantly more than the first 373 miles, at, right at about 7.9. So cattle lose the most shrink in the first three hours of transport. Now, there's some other factors that kind of come into the shrink scenario. One of them is environmental conditions. During cold weather, we would expect cattle to have more excretory shrink and less tissue shrink. In hot weather, 
we would expect more tissue shrink and less excretory shrink. And the tissue shrink in hot weather really comes from respiration and loss of, of cell moisture through respiration. Another factor that affects shrink is whether or not there's an ionic ore, in other words, Bovitec or Rumensin in the feed or the mineral. When that's included, cattle shrink less. Another factor is grazing time. There was a study that was done out west where cows were on native range, and they were met either weighed in early morning or in late morning. In other words, they had time to graze. The cattle that were weighed late morning were 2.5% heavier than the cattle that were weighed in the early morning. Sears, in that similar study, uh, handled similarly, uh, were 1.9% heavier after three hours of grazing versus weighing these cattle at daybreak. And the interesting thing is that the cattle that had three hours of grazing also tended to shrink less at all time points throughout the day following that weight. So the take-home summary of this is that prior to transport, we probably ought to think about avoiding super wet feeds, okay, dry hay probably is a better alternative for the last day or two before shipment, utilizing an ionic ore either in the feed or in the mineral, and making sure that we have a balanced diet including vitamins and minerals, and the mineral portion is really kind of a key factor because that's where the electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and others that really regulates the, the moisture of cells within the body. And the other factor is minimizing stress during the gathering, sorting, and loading process. So low-stress animal handling techniques is very significantly justified. During the transportation process, avoid sudden starts and stops uh, and, and, and going around curves too fast where the cattle are shifting back and forth in the trailer, okay, during the transporting process. So minimize how much the cattle have to shift. The other factor is avoiding delays, in other words, making sure that the equipment is in good condition, whether it's your equipment or you're hiring a trucker to haul your cattle. Make sure that you're, you're hiring truckers that uh, have good maintenance of their equipment. The other factor is avoiding weather extremes, like extremely hot and extremely cold uh, weather conditions as you move cattle up and down the road. Joining me today is uh, Dr. Kyle Shipman, and he is the Director of Field Operations at the Board of Animal Health. And Kyle, welcome to, uh, to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And, and I think today's topic uh, really needs to deal with, you know, the, uh, the official 840 identification system and the animal disease traceback. And as I remember, January 1 of 2015, uh, Board of Animal Health implemented uh, the USDA Animal Disease Traceback System um, for all sexually intact cattle and all dairy cattle as they move across state lines. And there was a couple exceptions to that. If you know, if you were taking cattle to a to a slaughter facility or you were moving, maybe a, if you're on the state line, if you wanted to use a veterinarian across the state line, but you were not ownership was not taken transferring, um, or if you were moving animals directly to a facility out of the state where the animal would be identified there. I think we're the three exceptions. Is that right? Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes. There are definitely some exceptions, especially seeking veterinary care um, across state lines and not the not changing ownership is a key piece to that. So, uh, yeah, those three exceptions. So so at that time, uh, there was kind of three official ID tags, okay, the the typical 840 electronic identification tag, so that's a 15-digit number that starts with 840, and there's a U.S. shield on that, on that tag. And then there was the noose tags, which some people refer to as the bright tag. And then there was the, uh, I don't know, I'm going to say a USDA uh, program tag, which would more than likely be a CAFWID vaccination, like a brucellosis tag. So, so there's a, tell, tell us about what the change is and, and what's going to happen here in the future. Yeah, so as, as we go through this process, we are trying to find more efficient ways um, to record the identification numbers of, that are placed on these tags. So historically with the news tags or the bright tags and the Catholic vaccination tags, those metal clip tags, um, there's no efficient way to read a large number of those tags. So with that 840 EID, electronic identification um, device, we are able to scan that device with a low frequency, um, radio frequency, um, and capture that number, which really reduces uh, the time needed to capture a large number of animals as well, especially in movement, uh, when these animals are moving on and off a trailer. Um, great time to capture that ID, but getting that record into this into our database system so that these animals are traceable in a disease event. So let, let's talk a little bit about how the system works. Okay, this whole disease traceback system. We've got premise IDs and we've got electronic ear tags. How do they come together? Yeah, absolutely. So. Generally, how that uh, starts and we'll, how the, we would be notified is um, slaughter surveillance. So we can use tuberculosis as an example. So TB and cattle, there's slaughter surveillance at our slaughter facilities. If an inspector on the, on the processing line sees something of concern, they will stop the line, pull that animal out to the side, but then they're gonna, first thing they're gonna do is read that official ID that is attached to that animal. When they have that official ID, that official ID um, is linked to that producer's premises ID. So when you link those two numbers together, that allows us to rapidly identify the farm of origin and give them the most heads up possible so that we can stop movement, we can take a look, assess the situation, and take that next step forward in order to protect our Indiana agriculture. And, you know, I, I think I've heard you and maybe even Dr. Marsh talk about um, how rapid that response has been for, for us here in Indiana. Let's talk about that for a minute. Sure, absolutely. So um, over 10 years ago, we've adopted a database uh, that's now used by 17 states, the USA Herds database. Um, and what that is, is it's uh, no more than matching kind of a telephone book information, a premises ID with numbers. And what that allows us to do is when we're given that number, that ID that's in these, these cattle ear, cattle's ears, we can find that number in under six minutes. With the national average in other states, uh, usually under 24 hours is as quick as they can get it, but in Indiana, under six minutes. 
And I think uh, Indiana kind of leads, uh, you know, the nation in premise ID numbers, okay, which is the, one of the key pieces to this. Is that right? Absolutely. So it's, it's the marriage of both the official identification with the premise identification. So we need to know the cow's number and where the cow is located. If you do not have either piece, it's really difficult to get back to that source farm. So um, Indiana is actually one of only two states in the country with registered premises ID for all livestock species. And we currently have over 60, 67,000 registered premises in the state. And that's across all species, right? All livestock species, correct. Yeah. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so I think you've, you've explained why the change to EID tags is, is an important step. Okay. And, and I think we've talked about the marriage, how the system works, the marriage of the premise ID and, and the EID tag. So now what's the benefit to the producer? Yeah, absolutely. So the benefit of the producer is going to be that long term. So when these breeding animals, and that's what uh, this new program that we're rolling out at the 1st of October is really targeting breeding animals, animals that are going to stay in your herd a little longer. Let this be your management number. Let it be an inventory number, if you will, on how you keep track of it. Because if you use this number and built it into your management systems, then it's a useful number to you as well as us. So if we both use this number in a similar manner, then there is value all around. And so that, that allows us to then contact you, the producer, rapidly. So if, if we as the you know, state government in Indiana are able to do this efficiently and use judicious taxpayer dollars, those are your dollars, right, that fund us, you know, we want to be judicious of that dollar through the entire process. So help us help you find if there's a disease of significance in your area. And I think, you know, and what, what I've said to producers is that, you know, it, it actually protects me as a producer because if there happens to be a disease outbreak and, you know, I mean, we just come through the COVID-19 thing, all right? right. And, and so we kind of know how this thing, how diseases can spread. You know, there's a number of countries around the globe that, that have got foot and mouth disease. And if we ever get that, that one is a highly contagious disease. Absolutely. And, and you know, if we, if we have an outbreak and, you know, it's 50 miles away from my place, I can, as a producer, am not located there. Okay, I'm not inside the circle. And so I can still remain in, in, in commerce. All right, where if I'm inside the circle, then I'm, I probably will be quarantined. Right. And so I think one of the values of this is is knowing that you're not part of the disease problem, as well as knowing that you are part of the disease problem. And I think that that's a that's comforting to me as a producer, I think. Absolutely. And we've seen this in the covid response as well. When you have no information, you have to take these broad blanket approaches because you don't know what you don't know. What these EIDs on top of the premise IDs really allow us to do is to take a precision response and really focus on the herds or herds at hand that are the highest risk to a disease spread. And instead of just saying, nope, we don't know where it's at, so we have to do this broad blanket, we can kind of narrow in our focus and really focus on the herds of most concern. One of the last things that I'd like for you to talk a little bit about is, uh, you know, there's going to be USDA has has bought a lot of electronic tags and they're going to be distributed to the states. OK, for 
accessed by producers free mm -hmm. until the supply is gone, right? So Correct. let's talk a little bit about the free tags that yeah. as a producer I might be able to access. Yeah, absolutely. So um, starting August 1st, we'll have available on the BOA website, which is BOA, B-O-A-H, dot I-N dot gov. Um, we'll have access for the producers and veterinarians to fill out a form and request tags um, from the USDA. And what that allows us to do is we will go through them, we'll process that order for you, submit it on your behalf to the USDA, and then they'll actually direct ship those tags right to your farm. Um, no cost to the producer at all to that process. And so what these tags look like are your traditional 840 tags. So this is your um, your typical 840 RFID tag. You can kind of see it right there. And again, that's going to be a 15-digit number that is associated with your premise ID. So the one thing I will ask is when you go to uh, order these tags, these free tags through our website, make sure you have your premises ID card on hand or know your premises ID number. Again, that's a seven-digit alphanumeric number that always starts with the number zero, zero. Um, have that on hand. We'll ask that in the ordering process, um, but just a few questions, and it'll be pretty easy to, to get that in. Kyle, thank you so much. Well, before I stop, I guess, is there anything else that we need to add to this discussion? Um, no, I mean, we're just encouraging producers again. Uh, we don't know what brand. There's a couple different brands. We're not sure what tagger you may need, um, but just know these tags are free, generally 2 to $3 a piece. But uh, while supplies last, we are offering them to our Indiana producers free of charge. And, and, and let me just add to that, you know, the uh, – you're going to have to have the right ear tagger, yes. okay, to do this. And I, I know some people have used their traditional uh, dangle tag, okay, mm -hmm. ear tagger, and that will oftentimes crush the uh, components inside that tag that allow it to be read. Yep. And so you, you get some tag failures. So you, producers will have to buy the correct ear tagger, okay, to apply whatever tags arrive in this free form. Yep, absolutely. And I, we always caution your frustration levels will increase if you're not using the right tag. So we really do encourage to use the right tagger and getting these tags in. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a good discussion. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This month's production and management tips. Uh, I'd like to start out with some things for you to consider. First of all, is finalize your life, your last day harvest to prevent freeze damage of those plants. We're getting to that point where uh, we're probably within six weeks of, of a frost, and plants need recovery time after they've been mowed or grazed, okay, particularly whenever we get down into that two to three inches of, of plant height. And, and the key piece here is, is that those plants have adequate time to recover carbohydrate reserves and their storage structures to be able to overwinter and obviously then to come back uh, with nice growth next spring. In spring cabin cow herds, think about low stress weaning, okay, that could be a fence line weaning, that could be using nose flaps, okay, to do the two-stage weaning process or maybe even abrupt weaning where you separate cows and calves out of sight, out of sound. Also consider castration, dehorning, vaccination, and deworming, deworming of calves. In other words, preconditioning these calves. 
We know that preconditioned calves also shrink less than calves that are pulled right off mom, loaded on the truck, and taken to the auction market. And now is a good time to start thinking about doing your final prep check for the season uh, in the spring calving cow herds so that we don't have to uh, spend the, the extra money for feeding of a cow that will not return its uh, uh, income this next year. In fall calving cow herds, we need to start thinking about vaccinating these cows before the beginning of the breeding season. And most vaccines actually increase the cytokine levels and, in the blood and also increase body temperature slightly due to a mild infection due to the immune response to that vaccine. And so the recommendation is that cows be vaccinated at least three weeks prior to breeding so that these vaccines do not have a negative effect on infection rate and when the breeding season starts. The other part of that vaccination idea is that these newborn calves uh, that are being born this fall probably need to have a clostridia vaccine along with maybe something else, okay, according to your veterinarian's recommendations. Another key factor is to start thinking about preparing for the upcoming breeding season. Doing breeding promise evaluations on bulls, adjusting body condition scores of not only the bulls, but the cows, and your replacement heifers. Make sure that your replacement heifers are on target to reach 60% or 65% of their mature weight going into the breeding season, and also think about ordering any breeding supplies that you might need, extra synchronizing drugs, semen, AI gloves, whatever it might be. And now's a good time to start thinking about finalizing the selection of your replacement heifers. In the case of fall pastures, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of the, the uh, biennial and perennial weed species that are still actively growing on into the fall. And these particular plants uh, are particularly susceptible to a fall application of herbicide. And so if you decide that you've got weeds that need to be controlled, consider these biannuals and perennial species that uh, are still actively growing uh, with a herbicide application. When you use a herbicide, make sure that you check the label for residual activity and restrictions. Some of them have some grazing restrictions. Some of them have restrictions in terms of how soon you can come back and add things like red clover in a frost seeding scenario or whatever. So make sure that you read the label, okay, for residual activity and restrictions. In the case of sorghums and sedans and the sorghum-sedan hybrids, okay, those plants are susceptible to producing prussic acid after a frost. So we might think about grazing prior to uh, a frost to avoid that prussic acid. And if we don't get that grazing done before a, a, a freeze, okay, not necessarily a killing freeze, but just a freeze, all right, those plants, if they regrow shoots, those, those new shoots are particularly uh, dangerous in terms of prussic acid. So if you can't get it grazed before frost, then you probably need to wait until after a killing frost about five to seven days after a killing frost before you go back and graze it. That makes that plant allows the prussic acid, which is really a hydrocyanic acid, to dissipate and, and then that forage becomes again. In upcoming programs and events, Hoosier Beef Conference is scheduled to take place December 4th to the 6th at the Indiana State Fairgrounds. 
The National Western in Denver, unfortunately, has been canceled for 2021. Indiana Beef Cattle Convention is going to be held January 23rd, 2021, in Danville, Indiana this year to reduce costs okay, to, for participation. That's at the Hendricks County Fairgrounds and Convention Center. Regional beef meetings. We typically have 10 regional beef meetings scattered around the state. This year, because of social distancing and, and serving food, uh, we're going to move this to a virtual event this year. And we'll have one uh, program to be broadcast statewide. The format will be similar to in the past. And we're going to have a panel discussion. Uh, as part of that, that program. We're still working on what date that that will be, but it'll probably be in early January. If you've been enjoying Beef Monthly, please do us a favor and tell your friends. Give us a thumbs up below this video and hit the subscribe button and the bell next to it for notifications when the next issue is posted. Beef Monthly is published the third Friday of each month by noon. We look forward to seeing you again next month. This presentation was a production of the Animal Science Department at Purdue University.